Who doesn't love an upset? Who doesn't love it when the underdog wins, when the little guy wins? We've just been through our own David and Goliath story here in the Bay Area with our warriors defeating the Cleveland Cavaliers. And doesn't it feel good to be on the team of the little guy who slayed the giant, even if the NBA is the only place where Steph Curry, who is six foot three, is a little guy. And even if LeBron James apparently is one of the nicest human beings on the planet, the little guys won. We love that. And we love this Bible story. If you learned it in Sunday school, you remember it forever. And if you didn't learn it in Sunday school, you still couldn't avoid knowing something about it because the phrase David and Goliath has become synonymous with improbable victory of the little guy over the giant. The story begins after David has been secretly anointed as Israel's king, although Saul remains on the throne. Saul was supposed to deal with the Philistine threat, but this is exactly what he's been unable to do. That threat is embodied in Goliath, not a fairy tale giant, but a huge man nevertheless. In his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, Malcolm Gladwell posits that Goliath suffered from acromegaly, a disease of the pituitary gland that causes abnormal growth. Well, besides the fact that there's just no proof for this, saying that Goliath must have suffered from a pituitary imbalance is pretty much like saying Rapunzel must have eaten a high-protein diet for her hair to be strong enough for people to climb it like a rope. In addition to his frightening height, Goliath is armed to the teeth, wearing something like 125 pounds of armor and carrying no less than three weapons. The very sight of him strikes fear into the hearts of Israel's soldiers. He issues a challenge to King Saul's army for single combat, a common practice in the ancient world. The two sides could avoid heavy losses by each sending out a single champion to represent them in a duel. So for 40 days, Goliath walks down the mountain and taunts Saul's army. And for 40 days, the soldiers of Israel wring their hands, talking among themselves about how terrible and hopeless this all is, immobilized by fear. That's when David shows up to bring his brothers their lunch at the battlefield. David can see what's going on, but rather than being terrified, he volunteers. I'll fight him, he says, and his brothers scold him for being completely ridiculous. He has zero experience in battle. King Saul himself delivers the line, you are not able to go against this Philistine, for you are just a boy. David assures the king that God will protect him, as God protected him against the bears and lions when he was watching his father Jesse's sheep in the wilderness. It's important that up to this point, no one besides David has thought to bring God into the conversation. Saul is out of options, so he agrees to let David try. Saul puts his own armor on David, but it's too big and heavy. David can't even walk in it, let alone fight. So down the mountain, David goes with only his slingshot and five smooth stones and his confidence in God's protection. 
Goliath tries more trash talk on David, but David responds with the most important line in this whole story. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then after 48 verses of suspenseful buildup, the action takes all of two verses. David runs at Goliath, slings a stone, Goliath falls, the Philistines flee. But the message of this story is not that the underdog won, or even, as Malcolm Gladwell would have us believe, that it was really Goliath and not David who was the underdog because David was the swifter, cleverer fighter who didn't follow the rules. David's witness, David's explicit declaration, is that he will defeat the giant not because he is stronger or cleverer than the Philistine, but because God is cleverer and stronger than either of them. Both David and Goliath are the underdogs in this story. It is not David, but God, who decides the day. Now, Bible stories can be dangerous, and there are two dangers with this story. First, there's the God-is-on-our-side danger, and related to it, there's the God-approved violence danger. As I said last week, these stories about David and Saul reflect the way things looked to people in the ancient Middle East in 1000 BC. They show the way people related to God in 1000 BC. In the intervening 3,000 years, every religion has used violence in the name of one God or another, including our God, and it is nothing short of tragic. In the New Testament, Jesus consistently opposed the use of violence. As German pastor Martin Niemöller confessed, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. God is not even the enemy of God's enemies. Or as Anne Lamott puts it, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So the question for us is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? The Philistines threatened the freedom and well-being of God's people. And what we see in the David and Goliath story is the God who is always on the side of those who are threatened with oppression. We see the God who can be counted on in the struggle against injustice. Are we on the same side as that God. And if we are, then like David, we are called to stand up to giants. We may not face Goliath, but we will face giants in our lifetime. As people of faith, we are called to stand up to the societal and cultural giants that threaten the peace and well-being and justice of God's world, the way the Philistines threatened Israel. The giant that looms larger than life in our nation right now is the giant of persistent racism and the violence that it causes. Not only the explicit and outrageous violence we witnessed last week, but also the daily violence, the smaller and larger indignities and inequalities that demean or deny a person's full humanity because of the color of his or her skin. I understand that the mass murder of nine folks attending a Bible study in Charleston was, as a New York Times editorial puts it, 
a confluence of some of the nation's most glaring problems. Easy access to guns is an issue. The public's general sense of helplessness is an issue. Politicians more interested in their own survival than the broader welfare is an issue. But it was nine African Americans who were killed, raising for us again how much black lives matter in this country. An article posted online this week challenged all of us who would describe, our, describe ourselves as allies of our African American brothers and sisters that the time for silence is over. The author, Denise Anderson, says, we don't get to name ourselves as allies. It is a title we must earn. Last winter, many of us spent four weeks studying race and privilege, and now is the time for us to go about earning the title of allies. I don't have any easy answers for how to do that, but Anderson's article is, has loads of ideas, and we need to explore them from working for housing for lower-income residents, to figuring out whether our police have a tendency to over-police communities of color, to supporting companies that are committed to racial and gender diversity. But though we don't have a quick solution today, David's encounter with Goliath teaches us some ways to approach this giant. First, facing a giant means naming it. It means looking it in the eye. In a blog in response to last week's events, social science researcher and author Brene Brown wrote, when we deny our stories, they define us. When we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. When we push down hurt or pretend that struggle doesn't exist, the hurt and the struggle own us. Owning our stories is standing in our truth. It's critical and transformative in our personal and professional lives. It's also critical in our community lives. Until we find a way to own our collective stories around racism in this country, our history and the stories of pain will own us. Another lesson we learn from David and Goliath is to shed the armor. In other words, be vulnerable. Brown writes, our collective stories of race in the U.S. are not easy to own. They are stories of slavery, violence, and systemic dehumanization. We will have to choose courage over comfort. We will have to feel our way through the shame and the sorrow. We will have to listen. We will have to challenge our resistance and our defensiveness. We have to keep listening, even when we want to scream, I'm not that way, that's not my fault. We have to examine our own stereotypes and prejudices. Every single one of us has them, and it will be tough. And we learn from David not to use the weapons of our opponent. In this story, David used his five smooth stones for an act of violence. As the quotation on your bulletin cover says, David was not a pacifist. But David didn't use the weapons that Goliath used, the spear, the javelin, the sword, weapons of domination, intimidation, and empire. Likewise, we should not use the weapons used to perpetrate, perpetuate uh, racism. Those weapons are hatred and violence and revenge. 
Rather, we should use the weapons, or perhaps a better word is the tools, of our faith. The families who confronted Dylan Roof with both their pain and their forgiveness are powerful and moving role models for us in that regard. Finally, we learn from David to trust God. The David and Goliath story might make us think the lesson is that if you're on God's side, the side of justice, you will prevail immediately. And we know from the long history of the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement that victory does not come overnight, regardless of how just your cause is. But this story contains truth about God, maybe the most important truth in the world. God is always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. Our hope is built on this truth. Our courage to face this giant against all odds is built on this truth. The thing about this particular giant is that it isn't actually bigger than we are because we are the giant. Brene Brown writes, yes, we need to own a million heartbreaking stories of discrimination and prejudice and make millions of changes and hold space for a million tough conversations. But if each one of us owns one story and makes one change and has one honest conversation where we listen more than defend or offer false comfort, we can do this. There is a way to write a brave new ending to one of the most painful stories of our history. What remains to be seen is if we have the will and the courage. I believe we do. God is calling us to be on God's side and confront this giant in our culture, in ourselves. Eventually, we shall overcome because it is God who will prevail. And with David, we say to this giant, you come to us with hatred and discrimination and violence, but we come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.